Hello, all Cooped Up Alaska listeners. We are into the year of 2021. Last year, we had a few conversations with various people, and this year we're starting off the conversation with climatologists. Here in Alaska, we have two very talented climatologists, including Rick Toman, who is a climate specialist with the Alaska Center of Climate Assessment and Policy at UAF, and Brian Brettschneider. Brian is a research physical scientist with National Weather Service Alaska Region. We started off the conversation talking about what were the three standout weather events in the year of 2020 in the Alaska Region. Here's what Rick had to say. What has to be the the number one story is the, is the torrential rain that we had at the very end of November and the first days of December. Not only was it meteorologically extreme in the northern panhandle rainfall amounts over several days with a NOAA estimated return period, that is to say we would expect to have this on average um, for some places um, less than once in 500 years because they trigger all the landslides and including the, the big landslide near Haines that resulted in fatalities. While these torrential rains occurred at the end of 2020, the second standout event was the beginning of 2020, which was extreme colds in Alaska in the month of January, Rick says. In southwest Alaska, January uh, was extremely cold month, not at record levels, but um, it, it uh, ranked and given the recent years we've had even more impressive. And then in February, we saw the same kind of very unusual uh, cold for, for at least for recent decades um, up north, where um, where Utqiagvik had their coldest February um, since nineteen since the nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty four, I believe. Maybe uh, my number three might be a kind of an anti uh, extreme event, although it's extreme in its own way. Um, for after, especially after 2019, with um, lots of uh, wildfire, lots of smoke, 2020 had the lowest total acreage burned in Alaska uh, in more than a decade. With the use of satellite imagery, Siberia had a very high level of wildfires uh, this last year of 2020. That's the way that it's done uh, is uh, through satellite imagery um, and both 2019 and 2020 were really extreme uh, wildfire years in the fairly limited uh, period of record. Those satellite-based observations for wildfire go back to about uh, 2000. Mm-hmm. But, but the, um, the folks there were of the opinion that this, they had never seen anything like the last two years. In Siberia, this extremely warm year and drought also added to perfect temperatures for wildfires. Rick explains more. The conditions in Siberia all tied up uh, with just an extremely, extremely warm um, year. Very warm last winter, very early snowmelt. Some of the fires that they had there were basically those zombie fires that overwinter um in the duff layer in just below the surface and with the very early snow melt there and very warm spring those fires some of those fires just came back to life and kick-started uh the season which went until the snow came in uh, october 
While Brian agrees with Rick on the first two choices of the standout events of 2020, uh, Brian picks a event on December 31st of New Year's Eve in the Bering Sea. He says, The third one I would pick would be the, uh, the December 31st uh, Bering Sea storm. Uh, fortunately, it had very few impacts uh, to, to people. But it you know, goes in the record books as not only the strongest storm in the North Pacific uh, on record, and that's probably you know, a 1950 to present time period, but also we ended up with the lowest uh, actual measured pressure from, a, from an actual station uh, at Shemya uh, on record in Alaska. And you know, these are areas that they get lots of storms and, and there, there's, a, there's a, a reasonably robust uh, data set, uh, you know, going back almost to World War II. And so to, to, to have the lowest, you know, in, in a 70 year period uh, is extremely noteworthy. And we're just fortunate that, uh, that there wasn't any damage. And as far as I know, there were no ships sank uh, and so on. So that would be my number three for sure. One of the chief roles of being a climatologist and weather forecaster is to predict weather events and also to gather information from various sources in studying these events. Brian talks a little bit about the technology in studying weather. Um, you know, things like, you know, weather balloons are about the same as they were and land-based stations are about the same as they were, but it's really uh, the remotely sensed data. Um, we're also getting uh, more of the, of the web cameras. We're getting more um, remote uh, automated stations, you know, places like, you know, the even like the Alaska Volcano Observatory, uh, they're trying to get some of their data, uh, you know, brought into the system. So it's it's uh, it's it's a combination of things, but ultimately it's it's all about having enough information uh, to make the best decisions. You know, so much of Alaska has historically been uh, data sparse, and you know we do the best we can on on making assessments and forecasts for those areas <clears throat> based on. Uh, again, based on limited information, but when we're able to fill in those data gaps, uh, you know, our ability to, to characterize what's going on there and to make forecasts uh, goes up dramatically. Rick adds, The new generation of, of satellites combined with um, you know, the abilities to, to digitally process that has really improved the availability of information uh, in the last few years, and that includes more than just the the pictures that we see. There's all kinds of data that's extracted from the instruments on there, and that has been really helpful. Without a doubt, the improvement of technologies have added to the pool of information. Rick says, A weather radar network that uh, has been in place since the mid-90s, but ch improvements in technology um, allow much more information to be extracted uh, nowadays than it was the case um, 25 years ago. So I think that's been a big improvement. Rick comments on the importance of social media in becoming another role of gathering information. The other uh, source of information that I would add that's, that's become quite valuable um, is social media. Before I got on this, this Zoom call, um, a, a post on Twitter uh, pointing out that a, a person who lives on the Salcher River, uh, southeast of Eielson Air Force Base, that they've got open water on the river. 
Social media offers real-time information for specific communities, which is highly valuable. There's no other way to get that kind of information. Uh, with, the, with the storms that we had in western Alaska in the fall, um, the primary way that uh, information got out, say, about um, the, the road getting uh, washed away at Shishmaret was via social media. You know, goes right along with the, um, say, the FAA webcams in providing information that otherwise we just wouldn't have. Brian, who is also very active on Twitter, says... I would concur. I mean, there's been a number of times where, um, you know, I, I see something either through an observation or, um, or someone says, you know, Hey, something might be going on over here and I'll get on and I'll start doing some searches on social media and you don't always get hits finding things, but, but, you know, many times I'll, I'll, you know, look for, you know, open ice on, you know, or Yukon river ice or something. And, and, and there'll, there'll be something that, that you know, someone's kind of randomly posted. You know, it, it, it gives you kind of some, some real-time opportunities to, uh, to kind of get, get, your, get the pulse of what's going on. Say I was going to go over to um, uh, Turnigan Pass and go, uh, you know, snowshoeing. And I, I, I just went on social media and looked for, you know, uh, pictures and videos of, of people who had been up there in the last, uh, either that day or the previous day, just to get a, get a feel for avalanche conditions as a supplement to the to the formal, uh, in that case, uh, uh, avalanche advisory issued by the Chugach National Forest. Uh, but again, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to find things uh, in real time, and, and in many cases, things you would never even have thought of. So uh, it's a lot of benefits. Yeah, I, would, I would agree. You know, we live next to the Talkeetna River, and we had an ice jam in the lower river, and in I decided just to just go out every day and video on Facebook Live of the ice forming up and then both at Main Street and Talkeetna as well as in our neighborhood. And I know a lot of people that don't live up here might have saved them a tank of gas because they could say, oh, I don't have to go there right now. It's stabilizing. And I think I like the ability for it to serve that um, purpose of answering questions of people and how to use their time to how to react or not. And that concludes part one of the interview with Rick Toman and Brian Bretschneider. The second part here after a short break is going to be about the human factor of becoming scientists. Thank you all for listening to All Cooped Up Alaska. You are listening to Rick Toman and Brian Bretschneider, and I'm Katie Ryder. Part two of this episode will be coming up in another episode.